0: Today's podcast is sponsored by Ave Maria Press. As a Catholic publisher, Ave Maria Press is committed to helping people know, love, and serve God through books and other resources.
1: New this spring, they have books by popular authors such as Claire Swinarski on Catholic Feminism, Joel Stepanik on Humility, and Haley Stewart on Living With Less. They also have books on forgiveness, Catholic social teaching, the Bible, and much more.
2: Find all of their books online at avemariapress.com. Ave Maria Press is a ministry of the United States Province of Holy Cross.
0: Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the scintillatingly young, sizzlingly hip, and spiffily lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news. Often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey guys. And Zach Davis.
1: You know, you put so much effort into getting those adverbs right. I know. Those tongue twister <laughs> adverbs.
0: And then <laughs> What are you talking about, Zach? I didn't get
2: anything wrong. This is edited. <laughs>
1: yep, but they did, you know, I really enjoyed those. I feel like they're spicing up what could be a rather grey Lent.
0: That's true.
2: Agreed.
1: So uh, speaking of Lent, what's on tap?
2: Nothing! I don't even have water.
1: I've got a shelter.
2: I've got my coffee. But you can have some of my coffee, Ashley, if you get thirsty during episode. Who are we talking to this week? This week, we're talking with Michael Rudzina. He is the founding pastor of Trinity Grace Church, a non-denominational church in New York City.
1: Yeah, Michael has a really interesting faith journey. Uh, His family was originally Catholic, and then um, he took some stops along the way before winding up as an evangelical Christian and then a non-denominational pastor here in New
0: York. Yeah, and I know personally I don't—we hear so much about evangelicals as, like, a political term or Mm -hmm. group, um, but I personally don't know that much about evangelical faith. Um, So I was really excited to talk to Michael um, about his own faith, but also the diversity within that community.
1: Yeah, and I don't think that's something—or I think that's something that a lot of Catholics need to know more about, and— he got to meet the Pope as part of his uh, this ecumenical group that he's a part of. So we talked to him about what it was like to meet the Pope, uh, what Catholics should know about evangelicals, and his faith journey. Coming up soon.
0: But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic News of the Week so you don't have to. Cardinal Daniel DiNardo, the Archbishop of Galveston, Houston, Texas, and the President of the U.S conference of catholic bishops suffered a mild stroke on march 15th and he's currently hospitalized um and in recovery though he says he is resting comfortably and talking to doctors and hopes to make a quick recovery
1: yeah a statement from the diocese quoted the cardinal as saying with so much to do i'm looking forward to getting back to work as soon as possible
2: so we pray for a speedy recovery for cardinal dinardo what's our next story zach
1: so our next story uh is of national importance and has some of its roots in Baltimore, Uh, there have been two bishops that have been removed from ministry over allegations of sexual harassment. Um, Start with one, uh, Bishop Gordon Bennett. He's a Jesuit and a former auxiliary bishop of Baltimore. Uh, He's been placed under restriction by Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and he's been accused of sexually harassing a young adult while he was serving as bishop of Mandeville in Jamaica. Um, That abuse was reported to the Vatican in 06, and Bennett resigned shortly thereafter.
0: So Bishop Bennett was actually cleared of this allegation in 2009 um, and had been working at Loyola University Marymount in Los Angeles until last year. Um, But his case was reopened uh, by the Archbishop of Maryland at the request of the Vatican um, just because there was some uncertainty about how the
2: original claim was handled. Bennett can no longer exercise Episcopal ministry and he remains a Jesuit and his future is currently under the control of his Jesuit superiors.
1: Yes. And so um, another story, we're moving slightly to uh, West Virginia, where um, Archbishop Lori, who's been um, appointed as sort of he- head of that diocese for the moment, um, he's barred Bishop um, Michael J. Bransfeld uh, from performing priestly duties after an investigation into allegations of ser- sexual harassment of adults is underway.
0: Yeah. And on top of that, the attorney general in West Virginia is suing um, Bishop Bransfield, and the Diocese of um, Wheeling-Charleston on charges that they, quote, knowingly employed pedophiles and failed to conduct adequate background checks for people working in Catholic schools and camps.
1: So normally it would be tough to sue a lot of these instances of sexual abuse because of the statutes of limitations running out. Um, And so what the attorney general is doing is going at this from a consumer protection standpoint, and so Mm -hmm. it's a civil litigation against the entire diocese. One for advertising false services, right? So they've advertised a safe environment and they didn't deliver on that. And also for not performing uh, background checks on priests and lay people who were convicted or at least accused of sexual assault.
0: Yeah, and I think this is the first time That the church has been sued in this way. I don't know of any other case where that's the approach that a a state has taken to prosecuting failures with regard to sexual abuse.
2: Yes. And a lot of law experts are saying that this is an escalation of the state holding the church accountable and how it's holding the church accountable.
1: And I think what we're seeing now is, a, I guess... A Church and a society is um, bishops are being paid attention to more both um, both for their personal actions uh, like in one of these cases and then also for how they've handled the administration or the management of a diocese and abuse allegations in the past. What's our next story Olga.
2: Our next story comes out of a Catholic school in Kentucky. An 18-year-old senior named Jerome Kunkel is suing the Northern Kentucky Health Department. He claims that his First Amendment rights were violated because he has not been allowed to attend school or play basketball because he is unvaccinated.
0: Right. So at this school, um, Assumption Academy, there were 32 cases of chickenpox at the school. And so officials announced that unvaccinated students um, would not be able to attend school for 21 days after the onset of the rash.
2: Right, and Kentucky is one of forty-seven states that grant religious exemptions for people who have religious beliefs against vaccines. Um, and the state requires that students who are exempt have to provide a sworn statement, which the student did last year.
1: And what's the arg- the religious argument here? Because he's claiming his Catholic belief, right? You said correct.
2: So his father came out and said, Bill Kunkel said that he feels that his religious beliefs are being violated. Because the vaccine was derived from aborted fetuses, from the cells of aborted fetuses. Is that true?
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is the first time I've actually heard this. Normally it's sort of, I don't know, anti-vax arguments are rooted in like correlations to or alleged correlations to uh, cases of autism. Right. I've never heard this before.
2: This was the first time I've heard this as well. So I did some digging. Um, And this is something a lot of Catholics worry about, because according to the National Catholic Bioethics Center, uh, there are a number of vaccines that were made in descendant cells of aborted fetuses dating back several decades. But the National Catholic Bioethics Center also said that since that time, the cell lines have grown independently so that these vaccines actually aren't from um, aborted fetuses. All right, I did not know that. Thank you for doing this research. Oh, you're welcome.
1: So, the, it has the Church, has the Catholic Church, ever spoken about how Catholics should be thinking about vaccinating their children?
0: Yeah, the Pontifical Academy for Life in 2005 uh, released a report um, that gives Catholics guidance for um, if they're struggling with the decision to vaccinate their kids or not. Um, and that report says that Catholics have a moral obligation to push for morally just vaccines, as in ones that aren't derived from aborted fetuses. But we shouldn't reject the vaccines that we have now that are made in a just way because we have an obligation to keep our children and our population safe. What's our next story, Zach?
1: So I thought we would take a moment to acknowledge that The NCAA tournament is underway and sort of connect this back to our last week's episode with uh, Marcus Howard from Marquette University and give an overview of what what Catholic schools have going for them in this week's tournament. All right.
0: So who's in the bracket?
1: So we got eight Catholic schools, Okay, right? And that includes three Jesuit schools. The Jesuit schools are uh, SLU, St. Louis University, um, Marquette, as mentioned before, and Gonzaga. Um and the other Catholic schools are Villanova, uh, St. Mary's, uh, St. John's, Seton Hall, and Iona. All
0: right, college, yes. And Gonzaga is a number one seed.
1: Gonzaga is a number one seed. You know who um, else is somewhat a number controver- one? Seed. Who's, who's oh also number one? I can't even be
0: cocky. I'm, it, I'm just going to ruin it like I did last year. But UVA is also a number one seed
1: and <laughs> Ashley's alma mater and <laughs> heartbreaker of Ashley from last year's yes. tournament. Uh, but I think. If you're betting on, if you're, you know, maybe doing some friendly wagers uh, in your bracket pool, they're, they're, Catholic schools are going to give you some good options for upsets, um, but also Gonzaga is probably going to make it far. They've definitely got the best shot,
2: I okay. think. That was going to be my next question. Which Catholic school is going to go the farthest? I think
1: Gonzaga, unless our uh, our former guest, Marcus Howard, goes on a total tear okay, through cool. the tournament, which he could do.
2: Got it. So, Th- unfortunately, that's who I'm rooting for, only because he was a Jesuitical guest. Yes.
1: What's our next story, Olga.
2: So our next story is coming out of Utah. Several churches in Utah are actually opening up their doors to the larger community because of the great acoustics that they have.
1: Yeah. So this is uh, from the Diocese of Salt Lake City, um, where you've got uh, choirs like the Utah State University Choir uh, performing at St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Church in Hyde Park. And also you've got um, other community choirs partnering with even the cathedral um, for the diocese. Um, and I, I thought this story was interesting. Um, obviously, it's a great uh, great for the church itself, but I thought this could maybe serve as a discussion for us about how Catholic churches and Catholic parishes operate in the wider community, right? Um, In, t- in the sense that they're hosting events like this, um, not just for their parish community, but for a wider audience.
0: Right. I, and I often get—I'm not personally nostalgic, but you hear about how churches used to just be, like, the center of, like— town life um, and just like an integral part of the community. And I do feel like that's something kind of is missing a little bit. Um, I will say my own parish uh, in downtown Brooklyn does make an effort to once a year have a community day where they invite anyone who lives in the neighborhood to come for a picnic. And I think I I think that's important because, you know, the churches as a physical space are a part of these neighborhoods um, and should contribute to it.
1: For sure. Although I do think it's like the norm to maybe have, like, a festival or something. But beyond that, I mean, and that sort of serves as a fundraiser. And I'm not saying this is what our parish is doing in Brooklyn, but there might be a parish festival that, you know, everyone's invited to, and it's a fundraiser, and it's a big festival. Uh, But there aren't other, really, a lot of other, you know, moments of collaboration where you're doing programming that's sort of outside of the normal parish committee or club or whatever. Olga, what's been your experience?
2: So... I've never personally experienced this in Catholic churches, but I have noticed I have experienced this in the Protestant churches that I've gone to with my fiance. Um, the church that we go to now is called the Riverside Church of town, and they have a lot of events where they bring people who are like activists or politicians to talk in the actual space where people worship every week. Um, and one thing that I have really appreciated from that is that it brings a lot of people who aren't Christians into the church and willing to engage with the pastors at the church. I've had friends and family who are like have no association with any church but have gone to spaces like this because they're like oh they had this really great speaker and I wanted to learn more about the kind of uh, social justice work that they do
1: right and it doesn't have to be so heavy handed in terms of like an evangelizing thing I think that's sort of the suspected undertone behind Mm -hmm. a lot of Churchy events. Right.
2: Yeah. And I think that when you open it up to not just explicitly Christian groups or Christian organizations or people, it makes it easier for people to, you know, give into the curiosity of being in that space. And I think it makes people less fearful to want to learn more about faith. Um, At least that's how I've experienced it being in there.
0: And I can imagine some people maybe objecting to the church being used um, for, you know, secular events that aren't tied to the mass um, just because this is a sacred place um, and you don't want to detract from that. I personally think it's great and that um, that the church shouldn't be contained in, in that way and just kept to a, a purely Sunday kind of thing.
1: Well, I think that, yeah— that makes sense. But also the church has often, or parishes in the United States, often have other properties that don't have to be, they're, they're not the sanctuary, right? You can have all kinds of other events in different parish halls. Yeah. And, and gyms, obviously there and, are
0: limits. Like you're not going to have a speaker who, you know, just is completely against Catholic teaching at your church, probably.
1: But maybe we should but maybe, have some more. Yeah. L- listeners, what do you think?
2: Joining us in studio today is Pastor Michael Ruzina. He is the founding pastor of Trinity Grace Church, a non-denominational church in New York City. Welcome to Jesuitical.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: We're super excited. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your your own faith journey? Your family was originally Catholic and then became evangelical Christians. What was that shift like?
3: Well, my, my grandparents on both sides were uh, pretty into practicing Catholicism and they were pretty consistent, had a vital faith, uh, but my parents... Really didn't connect with the Catholic Church in a deep way, um, so that their church engagement was more around like the sacraments. As we were children, so we were baptized, and then where were you
0: growing up? Uh, well, so we
3: were transplants from Chicago. Now, all my family's from Chicago, but we transplanted to Memphis when I was young. Mm. So, uh, the the Catholic parish that I have my memories from is in a, a suburb of Memphis. Uh, Our Lady of Perpetual Help.
0: Uh, Got it. Yeah, OLPH. Super
3: cal- OLPH. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so growing up at uh, OLPH, we—I uh, was baptized in Chicago, but then I did my uh, uh, first communion and uh, the sacrament of reconciliation at OLPH, and uh, that was mostly my church engagement. We didn't go on Sunday very frequently. Um, I remember doing catechesis before uh, uh, before I participated in the sacraments. And uh, f- funny story, my first confession. I lied in my first confession because <laughs> I felt so much pressure. And uh, and and the father asked me uh, what I had to say, and I, and I went through the the liturgy, and then uh, just drew a blank. So I made something up. Oh. <laughs> and uh, and then I felt bad for that. So I, I I think I doubled whatever he told me to do, just
1: like oh. because I knew I lied. <laughs> no, that's so good. Yeah, and yeah. you're like, and you're like, of course, a cute little kid at this point, right? Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah,
3: second grade or something yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, So, so we were more or less uh, not engaged in the church after that. And uh, my family was a big basketball family. So my dad was looking for programs around the city and there was a Baptist church that was absolutely killing it at every, like undefeated in every league, fielding competitive teams. And my dad was like, we're going to that church. And uh, to make matters better, it was like right around the corner from where we lived. So slowly but surely, we started attending this church because they would do the whole bait and switch thing, like, come yeah. to our worship service and we will give you your trophies <laughs> at the end after the <laughs> heavy-handed <laughs> invitation. And um, so, you know, we, we started slowly getting assimilated into that community, uh, which was actually quite beautiful. Um, we were loved and cared for in really beautiful ways. Um, however, when I was 13, having kind of, Gotten used to the the Baptist Church scene, and by the way, I have to say, like uh, my parents were not big fans of this Baptist Church, so uh,
1: just big fans of the basketball of the basketball Got it. program, <laughs> right?
3: I mean, I remember the first service we attended there. Uh, so clearly, they were not big fans of religion mm-hmm. in general at the time. And uh, leaving the the worship service, my, uh, my dad would just be like, Brother Jerry is full of, and then, you know, any explicative you could imagine. <laughs> and so I kind of grew up thinking, well, my parents are pretty averse to this um, or critical of this, uh, but I... I always had a Godward inclination. I remember uh, even before we were in between churches, uh, I had a rosary that my grandmother taught me how to pray. And I never really fully prayed it, but I went into my backyard. They're pretty long. They are quite long. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and I go into my backyard and I I think I had a fever. I was home from school and I just started like praying. And as I was praying, of course I didn't have words at the time, but I, I remember just feeling this overwhelming sense of, the love of God. And it was almost as if the, uh, the the blues were bluer and the greens were greener and the sounds were more uh, prominent and acute. And I just remember having this profound sense of everything's going to be okay. But I, I was on my own journey and at 13, I sort of had this sense of, I need to devote my life to Christ. Um, and I didn't know exactly how, I didn't have many mechanisms for that. And a friend of mine invited me to this, like, crazy drama that is literally designed to scare the hell out of you. Uh, it's called a Judgment House or a Hell House. Have you heard of these? No. no. Okay, so they're, they're like mini-act plays. Oh, literally, scared the like, literally. <laughs> yep. scare Following, the hell out of now. you. Like, literally. Yep. Scare the hell out Following now. Yep. So I, uh, you follow this uh, multi-act play. And you follow these teenage characters. And, you know, they, they go to a party and they're behaving in taboo ways that the church, you know, kind of discourages. Like and dancing. Um, <laughs> like dancing <laughs> and drinking <laughs> and smoking and premarital sex. And then uh, we get to uh, th- th- this car accident scene. They die. Then the next scene is the judgment. They're before Christ. And uh, eight-year-olds dressed like demons, like, come out and grab the child that doesn't answer correctly take them to hell. The other one who answers correctly goes to heaven. And at the end they have like a decision counselor who's like, would you like to give your life to Christ? So wow.
2: that sounds so terrifying. it is,
3: it is pretty heavy handed <laughs> coercive and terrifying, but I will, I will say I kind of saw through that. Like I, I, I wasn't uh, pulled into that or persuaded by that. Something other than that was happening in my life. And this just happened to be like the catalyst for galvanizing a decision, a commitment. And at the end, I just said, I, you know, I want to devote my life to Christ And so the, the person led me in a prayer. And then I said, uh, do I have to tell my parents about this? And he, again, this is as heavy handed as it gets. He's like, well, Jesus said, if you deny me before men, then you will be denied. And I was just like, well, I guess I got to do it. So, uh, I went home, told my parents. And at this point I kind of like had picked up the evangelical lingo of, I was saved, which is kind of like Mm a, a moment of conversion, a moment of, uh, uh, you know, shift in heart and devotion. And, and so I, I, explain this to my parents and they both started weeping and uh it turns out that my mom was going back to school at a liberal arts school a christian liberal arts school she was studying the bible for the first time really and they would be up into the late hours of night like talking about jesus and what it means to follow jesus and my dad was going through a really tough time in life and basically all of us went to church the next sunday uh Went down to the front of the church at the end of the service, which was the custom of our Baptist church. It was like the, the threshold of commitment and decision. He grabbed the microphone from the pastor and said, uh, You know, I've been resisting God's call in my life for years, and uh, I'm finally uh, giving up my life to Christ. So it was like a really profound thing for our entire family, my brother and my sister. And it set us on a journey of discipleship, of trying to follow Christ. Uh, in earnest, whereas prior to that, we really, there wasn't like a significant engagement.
1: And what's the your journey as a Christian been like since that point?
3: Well, it, I mean, varied. Uh, I hit a, sort of a ceiling in my Baptist experience in terms mm-hmm. of what was, it was a very moralistic, legalistic sort of uh, culture, and also somewhat anti-intellectual. So uh, I had many questions I was my youth minister and my senior ministers, like the bane of their existence for years, because I would just ask question after question after question. And there are many answers. I just wasn't satisfied. I was like, I don't know. I don't really buy that. I'm not sure. And then I went to a, a Christian liberal arts school and uh, was more formally educated. I studied uh, theology. I studied uh, the biblical languages. And it, it was during that time I was forming a sense of calling to ministry. Um, So I was ordained into ministry uh, shortly after I graduated from college and uh, have been working in uh, ministry, full-time ministry in evangelical churches ever since.
0: Can you describe some of the internal divisions within the evangelical church for those of us who are less aware?
3: Well, I actually just gave a a talk at Columbia on this topic um, where I parsed out the landscape within evangelicalism. Because I think a lot of people look at evangelicals as a monolith and aren't really sure of the distinctions within it. And it's such a buzzword now, especially politically, uh, that it's, it, it, yet it's a word that few really understand. Um, so when I look at the evangelical landscape, I love using the language uh, of a study that USC put out, um, which parses out, I think very helpfully, where we stand now, especially on the other side of the election of uh, President Trump. So there's the uh, uh, the Trump evangelicals, which are people who are kind of an extension of the religious right uh, and that sort of grab at power. I mean, they're pretty ideologically, theologically conservative, but they are very aggressive in terms of their presence and very vocal.
0: I've also heard that they're less likely to go to church regularly? Is that true?
3: Well, I think that there is there have been studies that indicate that, but um, I w- you wouldn't say that about the figureheads. Mm-hmm. So like Jerry Falwell Jr. Okay. or Franklin Graham, they would be Trump evangelicals. Yeah. And they are sort of at the epicenter of, of some of the institutions, key institutions. And then you have uh, another group that uh, is more of a, uh, uh, a purist group. They would hold the same ideals, um, some of the same political beliefs even, uh, and emphases, things on, like abortion rights and religious freedom. However, uh, they're not willing to sort of dirty themselves with alignments like you saw uh, many making during the election cycle. So uh, they would distance themselves, per, say, from President Trump now, uh, but they still are, are very happy with some of the policies that are being moved forward and uh, are sort of uh, you know, quietly uh, doing the work uh, from their conservative theology. And then the third is what uh, they call the evangelicals, and these would be attached to mega churches. So um, the mega church phenomenon, the church growth phenomenon, is really rooted in an attempt to make faith relevant. And so lots of these churches uh, reach for people through uh, relevant forms. So, so you'll is see. Is it like
0: I, iPhone evangelical? Uh, yeah, exactly, the, like the letter the, I, okay. <laughs>
3: evangelical. Because it really, in some ways, expresses an individualism and an emphasis on individual choice and individual preference and relevance. So, even in,
1: like, giant communities.
3: Yes, even in, which is the irony, right? But they are appealing through market style and the liturgy of the rock concert or the liturgy of the shopping mall. I mean, the, these are the forms that they're using in order to get the message across. And so this group of evangelicals would, be somewhat, would hold some of the basic beliefs of all evangelicals, but they uh, avoid controversy like the plague. They would never want to get politically involved. They would never want to cause controversy around ideas um, because it would compromise their attempt to be relevant and to reach people. Um, so, uh, I think like the Hillsong church movement would be in that category. Really, any any megachurch. The fourth would be uh, what I think they called Kingdom Christians, and these are hyper local focused. Uh, people who are looking to to be about the development and the well-being of their local community, and they are inclusive in that they're willing to work outside of the the boundaries of their own particular faith tradition. And then the final would be like the peace and justice evangelicals, who, to be fair, are a minority and on the fringe of most other communities and institutions, and yet they are growing, a, a very significantly growing Movement And these are people who sort of, what I understand about the sort of Jesuit stream of the, the Catholic Church, uh, sort of social justice, Christianity, uh, focused on issues of equality and focused on issues of uh, creation care and trying to connect faith to these social issues in meaningful ways. Um, so they tend to be a little more progressive um, and uh, more politically active. Uh, they wouldn't shy away from controversy. And uh, they are involved in the local community, but they do think macro. And that's what distinguishes them from the kingdom Christians.
2: So where on the spectrum do you see yourself represented in those five groups you just described?
3: Well, I have to be honest, in my evangelical experience, especially how the term is used, I've, I've often called into question the use of the term and the label. Um, and, and so uh, there was a period of time where I kind of considered myself a post-evangelical because I was like, this is a part of my story. These are a part of my roots. But what I'm seeing out there in the landscape, I don't identify with at all. And uh, so I had to like, really think through what is, what is beautiful and good about this movement and this tradition, and, uh, and how do I want to place myself? So I would be probably more in the peace and justice uh, evangelical camp, although I, I also resonate with the sort of the quote-unquote kingdom evangelical. Um, I, I tend to, be, to see faith as needing an activist component. Um, in order to be vital, almost along the lines of the teaching of of St. James, you know, like uh, right. faith without works is dead. Um, so I'm not that interested in a faith that's isolated from social good. Um, and uh, the, the work that I do as a pastor is trying to cultivate a community that is connecting the dot between faith and life. And that is, uh, yeah, an activist for social good in the name of Christ. So
1: you sort of outlined the the diversity in the evangelical movement, but what what's tying them all together. So Mm -hmm. what is that label attempting to do?
3: I think uh, there are obviously, as you would imagine, debates about what the center of evangelicalism Mm -hmm. is, but usually uh, there's an evangelical statement of faith that's been published. I think there have been uh, evangelical seminaries that have come together to try to parse this out. And typically it has uh, to do with a a high view of scripture. Um, So like a view of scripture as inspired, uh, often inerrant, infallible, Uh, They would have a sense of the need for personal conversion um, and uh, the sense that uh, this is a a message worth spreading. So I think evangelicals are known for their, often for their aggressive sort of outward uh, spreading of the message posture. Uh, In fact, after we became evangelical Christians at this Baptist church, uh, we were told like our Catholic brothers and sisters weren't really Christians and mm. we were told we should try to convert our Catholic family. So I remember having these long debates with my Catholic grandmother to the point where she would be in tears like, Michael, I'm a Christian. And I would be like, but do you know that you're saved? Like, have you prayed this prayer? Because this was the form of faith that I was given. And uh, we we later resolved that tension. But, you know, that's that's part of the real conflict there is, is these sort of tribal mentalities. Yeah.
0: What are some of the misconceptions that you think people have about evangelicals?
3: I think that uh, they tend to think of evangelical the way the media talks about evangelicalism. So uh, the most vocal, uh, the most political, that tends to be what's what evangelicals are uh, seen through. Um, however, my my experience of evangelicals is often connected to um, like meaningful spirituality. Uh, meaningful engagement with the scriptures and a reverence for engagement with the Bible and uh, also a sense of a sense of burden and passion um, to see people know the beauty and the love of Christ um, and I think that that's actually a quite a beautiful thing so when I think of my relationship to it I go I like that invitational um, posture um, I don't like a Coercive posture. Mm-hmm. I don't like a you know proselytizing where you're not you're not open, you're just closed and you're trying yeah. to sell people to your point of view. I, I definitely like an openness. Yeah, but yeah.
0: the way you described going to that first Baptist church and uh-huh. like you immediately your family feeling welcomed in love. I think yeah. that's that is not something a lot of Catholics have experienced. Mm-hmm. Um so what what do you think Catholics could learn from from the evangelical church and the way they, they do that outreach?
3: Well, I think just as evangelicals are not a monolith, Catholics aren't either. Um, and there are trends, of course, and my experience of, of the Catholic church has been um, its own thing. But uh, when we were children, we just loved the warmth of this Baptist church. And uh, it's not really the fault of the Catholic church. Uh, it was probably more the, if there was anyone to blame my parents for not like helping us connect the dots to our environment, and what we were doing uh, during mass, but it, we just couldn't appreciate what was happening. It was very difficult. So uh, my Catholic experience as a child felt quite cold Whereas my, Catholic, my evangelical experience felt very warm and friendly. And I think just from a, a psychological perspective, uh, that is something that, that we can all pay attention to and learn from at some level. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. What have you learned about sort of the lines between denominations being a pastor at a non-denominational church?
3: Well, uh, what I've learned about this is that there is, for better or worse, a sort of like trans-tribal sentiment among many people, that uh, the lines that mattered to a previous generation don't matter as much to a new generation. Um, However, I can tell you also as a non-denominational pastor that the pressure one feels not being attached to a tradition is uh, pretty significant. Every theological decision, every ethical decision, I don't have a body of social teaching that I'm like drawing from, that I'm adding my voice to, to pass on, it really is, Uh, generated, though I'm a student of history and student of Christian history and theology, it really is up to us. And that is an extraordinary pressure that's very difficult uh, to manage. Um, And we appeal to tradition, of course, but I think there's a sense of being Mm free-floating that's very difficult. On the other hand, we are extraordinarily agile and creative. And because of that, we're able to connect with people in ways that uh, people with some of the bureaucracy and red tape have have a difficult time doing.
2: So you were part of a group uh, called John 17 that Mm -hmm. met with Pope Francis to foster ecumenical dialogue. What was that like and kind of just what happened when you met Pope Francis?
3: Sure. So uh, I was introduced to the John 17 movement and uh, spirituality uh, by a guy named Joe Tosini, uh, who lives in uh, is is a New Yorker, grew up in Brooklyn. And um, he himself had a Catholic background, but became a Protestant minister and here in the, the last 10 years has just done a phenomenal job of building bridges and friendships uh, between Protestants, particularly Pentecostals and, and Evangelicals and Catholic leaders. So uh, I, I went to a lunch, met several people on Long Island, and, uh, and found myself invited to an event here uh, at a Catholic church in Midtown. And it was an ecumenical gathering. And the whole idea of John 17 is not um, theological ecumenicism, which is really uh, important, uh, uh, ecumenism, uh, but it's more relational, building friendship, uh, especially at the grassroots level, from the feet up, so to speak. And uh, I think that's I, something Pope Francis has said too, something about letting,
1: the, we'll just put the theologians on an island and let them, <laughs> yeah. let them sort it out, and sure. we'll just sort of walk together hand in
3: hand. Sure. In fact, he's several speeches he's referenced our meetings, we've met with him three times. Uh, he's referenced our meetings as sort of the paradigm, which I think he finds most promising for what the kind church of moving did you forward.
0: Too, so uh,
3: you know, like we we shared our hearts together. He was, first of all, the most present person in the room. He felt like the most alive person in the room, which was extraordinary. And to think of like the age and the responsibility and the pressure, and to have that sort of like vitality, it was really um, beautiful. I asked him the first meeting, uh, "Tell me, like, if you were my age and you were." prioritizing your leadership for the next 40 years, what would you focus on? He thought for a second and said, you know what I'm about to tell you is going to sound counterintuitive. Cause like the minister, uh, the minister's role is to proclaim the gospel. But he said, I think the thing that's most important for our moment now and for the, the age to come is the ministry of the ear, learning to listen, uh, learning to listen to our people, uh, learning to listen to our neighbors, and uh, across across all kinds of lines. And he said that the seed, the, the word of someone else is like a seed planted in the heart that over time uh, bears fruit and it grows and it has its impact. And I, I tell you what, like it really changed the posture of my ministry and of my leadership uh, to, not to, to proselytize in the sense of like, I need you to become my view or my version of Christianity, but to own where I've come from, who I am, to let you own who you are, where you've come from, and to build a bridge of friendship. In this last year's meeting, I was able to share a little bit of my story, and I was like, okay, I've done this. I've, I've listened, I've built bridges and friendships. I love getting people to a table who disagree and just like, let's, let's talk, let's get to know each other. But I will say that that led me beyond Christianity and many of my friends who don't identify as Christian, other faiths or agnostic or atheist, and I find myself compelled to friendship with them as well and uh, how do you think about that the ministry of the ear that leads us to you know this john 17 idea this prayer for unity but how do you think about that beyond the church and he basically said i'm very moved by what you've said and he said i think that the holy spirit is the one that moves us across boundaries and across borders to connect with and to love the other and he said trust what the holy spirit will do as you have encounters beyond the church beyond uh, your sort of Christian boundaries, and uh, he just talked about the need for uh, living the message and living a life of love, especially enemy love. And uh, if we can, if we can embody enemy love, that will win the imagination of people. So I, I just, I was inspired by that.
0: That's incredible. What yeah. did your grandma think of this? <laughs> my
3: grandmother was ecstatic. <laughs> she, it was like I think she always, and they, my grandparents have always been proud of me, but it was almost like like the pride got notched up a level um <laughs> mm-hmm. and even like what I do was I think seen in their eyes is, is a little more valid um but it's it's been one of the most important you know series of moments of my life um, and it's given me a healthy appreciation for uh the need we have for one another within the bod- larger body of Christ um, to listen to each other to learn from each other um, and to move toward each other uh while remaining who we are authentically
1: are there some people in your community, either Grace Trinity or larger evangelical, that would be scandalized by the pastor taking advice from the Pope?
3: <laughs> I, there there certainly are, uh, especially in the national scene. I haven't found that to be the case so much in New York. And part of that is, I think, our sensibilities in New York are a little more... Uh, accustomed to diversity, but um, certainly beyond New York and the pastors uh, who were a part of those meetings who were elsewhere really had got some heat from their congregations. I mean, in some of these traditions, like the, the Catholic Church is looked at as, as uh, uh, satanic, you know, it's, it's really sad. And we've heard stories from the other side as well, like some of our Catholic mm-hmm. brothers and sisters saying similar things.
1: Why do you think that this dialogue is so important to do?
3: I think it's important because it's, how Jesus connected with people as well. Um, Jesus asked over 300 questions in the gospels. Do you know how many he answered? Three. Three.
0: We're clearly Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> I
3: just think. Um, <laughs> it was like, whoa, well, quiz. <laughs> okay. um, but I think that the curiosity of Jesus, and even if Jesus had an answer, he often would just ask another question because he realized like the way we learn, is through the process of asking one another questions. Cause it's that method of, of really questioning one another that helps us get drilled down to what's really important and what we really think. Um, and I think when we encounter the other, we encounter the divine. You know, Jesus said, if you visit the sick or you visit the prisoner or take care of the poor, you've done so to me. And I think those who are on the margins and without power often need to see Christ in themselves. And those who have power or privilege or at the center of an institution need to see Christ in others. And so it's this idea of connecting with the other that helps us connect with Christ. And I think if we're uh, siloed from the other, whoever that might be, like the non-Catholic or the non-evangelical or the non-Christian, we would do damage to sort of our communion with Christ because Christ is Lord of all.
2: Thanks for coming on and being part of that dialogue with us.
3: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) My pleasure.
2: Um, So we've got one more question for you. If you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or not, who would it be and why?
3: So what's funny is uh, you assume I know what that means. Oh, I did. I actually do. But (laughs) most evangelicals wouldn't.
2: (laughs) Really? I I, I don't like womensplaining to our guests, so I just always assume that they know. I appreciate that.
3: No, no, I appreciate that. Um, ah, That's such a great question. I'm actually going to give you a really, this is not serious, but it kind of is. Um, I tell stories often of Bill Murray. And someone actually, I this, tell them so frequently. This is great. I'm already so into this. Go ahead. <laughs> so this is like your evangelical answer. Um, I get, uh, I get these uh, comments from people who are like, we love the Bill Murray stories that you tell in, in homilies. And uh, someone actually just recently gave me a Bill Murray candle with like, like a, like a votive candle. That's pretty
0: Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> you
3: with know, a sacred heart and everything. It's, it's, it's like borderline blasphemous, but um but this this idea of uh, I think what Bill and Mary is an icon of in our culture is also something I see in Jesus. Just the sense of wonder, like children drawn to him. Um, you know, Jesus was called by others like a, a glutton or a drunkard. His first miracle was turning water to wine. I mean, Jesus was not. It, it seems to be from our, our you know our gospel story. Although he's certainly pointed and serious at times, very jovial and full of whimsy and. I think in our our time, uh, a faith that has whimsy is something that we need more of. Do
0: you have a favorite quick Bill Murray story that you have incorporated in homily?
3: Well, uh, have you heard of the documentary that came out? Um, it's like a documentary about the Bill Murray uh, mythology because now it's just this growing it's almost like an urban legend but there's video proof So Does he
0: just like will show up at people's parties right? that's right
3: he shows up at people's parties I think someone was using the restroom and had someone put their hands over his eyes and he turned around and it was Bill Murray and Bill Murray just said no one will ever believe you <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah I can see Jesus doing yeah, that yeah
3: yeah, that's <laughs> just the idea of popping into a party and like the, you know relative nobodies and he's like celebrating Someone's birthday and singing, and he gets everybody dancing, and then he just leaves the room non discreetly. Wow. Yeah.
1: Well, St. Bill Murray. St. Bill Murray. Pray for <laughs> us. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for joining for us today. Me. Where can people find more
3: about your work or about John 17's work? Well, we published a book called John 17, The Heart of God by New City Press, and it's a series of stories of people who. Uh, have met with Pope Francis and are doing this work of bridge building, relational bridge building. So that's one place you can check us out. And uh, tgctribeca.com is our website, and uh, all the content that we produce uh, is is available there.
1: Awesome. awesome!
3: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have, Zach?
1: We are turning 100. Woo! Woo! And my mother pointed this out to me is that we're already getting close to 100 in the podcast feed, meaning, sorry, when I say we're turning 100, we are coming <laughs> with our physically. Hu- not physically, <laughs> but we are approaching 100 episodes. Yeah,
2: that's so crazy. It. Isn't that insane? I can't believe
1: it. Like, this is our third Lent. We've got a hundred episodes and I was talking to my mother and she mentioned that the podcast feed already has like, it's getting close to a hundred or already has it, but those were bonus episodes and short episodes and those do not count as full episodes. (laughs) They do not.
0: So how are we celebrating?
1: We are having a live event where, uh, Kirsten Powers, a former guest is going to turn the tables on us and Mm -hmm. she will be interviewing us about Jesuitical and the making of it, uh,
0: Father James Martin will also be there. Father James Martin will be there us.
1: introducing us, another frequent guest. We're, we'll be inviting uh, past guests to come mm-hmm. to the to this shindig. Uh, it's going to be at American Media's headquarters. We'll be posting uh, the link to how to buy tickets to that in our show notes. We'll be, we'll be blasting it on our Facebook page and uh, Twitter feeds and what have you. And... Another exciting thing.
0: Yes. If you follow us on Patreon, you'll have the opportunity to get a free ticket. We're going to have a little raffle. Um, So if you're not already on Patreon, if you do that in the next couple days, then you will be entered into that.
1: So come celebrate with us. We're turning 100. We'll see you there.
0: Can we still call ourselves young? (laughs)
1: The, yeah, uh, you're going to need some good adverbs for that episode.
0: (laughs) All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga?
2: I've got a consolation this week. So a few, about a month or so ago, um, Enoch's uncle died in Ghana and Seeing his family has been preparing, their customs are very different. So, you don't have a wake or a funeral the week or two weeks after. It's like two months, it's like almost a two month long process. Mm-hmm. So, this past weekend, um, th- his family had what I'm just going to kind of describe as a wake without a body, um, where people in the community brought them food, gave them money um, to help them prepare for uh, their upcoming trip to Ghana. Uh, and there was one moment where I'm there and I'm looking at all these people and I turn to Enoch and I'm like, oh, Do you know who any of these people are? And he's like, no, I've never met these people before in my life. And I'm like, so what are they doing here? Um, And he's like, you know, they come out to show out and to support my family because we're all Christian. Um, And the consolation was just like seeing this extremely strong Christian community come together for this family that is mourning um, a relative and no questions asked. They were just meeting there for the first time and then just kind of seeing the outpouring of support um, was really, really beautiful. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. What do you have, Zach?
1: I've got a desolation. Uh, So for Lent, I'm going to our parishes. uh, We've got like a Lenten penance service thing tomorrow night that I'm going to. And uh, feeling like nervous, afraid. Uh, Let's just say it's been too long since my last confession. Uh, And i've sort of set a date where i'm gonna go talk with god right but i'm not really talking to god before that time i'm like i'm putting it off until then like because i'm feeling fearful and nervous and anxious and uh we're gonna have to we're gonna have to go deep on some stuff and i don't really and i have not been engaging god at all this week because i've just sort of been like well that's happening wednesday that's a wednesday problem yep that's a wednesday problem yeah. uh so that's my desolation this week yeah.
0: I should probably go to that too.
1: <laughs> I was saying that to guilt you. And, <laughs> I, know.
0: No, just I didn't kidding. know this was happening. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, Ashley, right. what do you have? I have a consolation also related to our parish. Um, this Lent I started going, they have like a, a weekly small faith sharing group that you can be a part of um, during Lent. Uh so I've only, I've vented the first two. Um and I was I was nervous about it. I mean, I know we like do faith sharing on air. Um every week, but still it's not something that comes naturally to me. And this is gonna be like it's a small group, it's very intimate, it's people of different ages. Um and because my like perfectionism knows no bounds, like I just like need in my head like needed to be the best faith sharer ever. <laughs> <laughs> very own brand um, for you. <laughs> and so I was going into it pretty nervous. Um but then I got there and everyone in the group was just immediately so honest and vulnerable. Um that I was able to like, I I had that voice in my head, you know, that was telling me like you're not good enough at this. You should just be quiet, don't engage. Um, but I was able to ignore that voice um, and and open up with with these people in my faith community. Um, and so the the consolation is is getting over that that fearful voice um, and listening to the one that says you know it's okay to just be yourself with these other people and um, They can help you, you can help them, and so it's been it's been good and I'm really looking forward to the rest of Lent. It's really beautiful, Ashley. Yeah.
1: Even though it sounds like you're cheating on us with another thing. (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. This is good and to be encouraged.
2: (laughs) Never mind, I take back my beautiful comment. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh, All right, you can
0: take that for the pen and service (laughs) I
1: will thing it.
0: (laughs) All right. Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Julie Henling. Jesuit Formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering by Kieran Freeman. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And leave us a review. Shout out this week to Jeffrey Miguel Wallace and G.D. Crowder. And you can send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at judgepolitical at For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Polka Segura and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.